Lord, we come before you and we acknowledge the fact that we are needy people and we acknowledge the fact that we are not the good people. And Lord, one of the great mysteries is that you have called men to preach. We are unqualified, insufficient. I'm unqualified and insufficient. We all fall so short. And yet as we think on this mystery, we recall the truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where you say that you have put this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. You intentionally gave your message to weak people, and the purpose, you say, was so that you would be able to demonstrate that the power belongs to God. And so I pray that in my weakness and in our weakness, the word would shine through, that we would find it to be sufficient in all things. Minister to us in our neediness. In Christ's name, amen. I don't have anything up here, so if you guys want to follow along back there as best you can, that'd be great. Last week, we begun a sermon series on the topic of depression, and uh, I want to give you the uh, outline, and actually, I think I do have something up here. I want to give you the outline uh, that we started with last time, and that is this. A brief word on psychology, a biblical definition of depression, the many occasions of depression, the cause of depression, how to identify depression, the psychosomatic nature of depression, unbiblical responses to depression, how to counsel those who are depressed, and the cure to depression. And since I've got a ton of stuff to cover today, we're just going to jump right in on the first one, the many occasions of depression. Now, if you were paying close attention to my outline last week, this is actually a new one. And I originally just had causes of depression, but that wasn't clear enough. So I wanted to differentiate the occasions of depression from the causes of depression. There is a difference between a cause and an occasion. Establishing... A cause and effect relationship can be very hard to do. And we oftentimes will see these charts and these graphs and these correlations, and we will have many people make conclusions that because of this, we know that this causes this. Sometimes that is true, and sometimes it's not true. This is, by the way, how data analysis can sometimes intentionally or unintentionally trick us into buying into false data in order to make a point. Now, I want to give you some examples of this so you understand what I'm saying, okay? You can go to a website called spuriouscorrelations.com, and here's one correlation. 
the money spent on movie theater admissions in the U.S. correlates with precipitation in Pennsylvania. <laughs> and the more people spend on movie theater admission tickets, the more it rains in Pennsylvania. And the less that they spend, the less it rains in Pennsylvania. Now, did the movie tickets influence, did they cause the rain in Pennsylvania? Or does the rain cause the movie tickets to be purchased more? Or is it just purely coincidence? I would say this one's purely coincidence. Or this one. People who drowned out of, after falling out of a fishing boat correlates with the marriage rate in Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's affecting what here? <laughs> what does this mean? <laughs> Should less people get married so less people drown out of fishing boats? I don't know. Or this one. The per capita consumption of mozzarella cheese correlates with civil engineering doctorates awarded. <laughs> So the more people consume mozzarella cheese, the more people are getting civil engineering doctorates. Does that cause that? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> In fact, it doesn't. We could assuredly say that. So I bring this up to us because I want it to help us understand that sometimes what we label as a cause of depression could be a correlation, or it could be that there's a third thing out there causing both of those things to happen. And it's not that one causes the other, but that something else is causing them. Uh, another, I think maybe a couple years ago, I didn't put a chart up there, but I made this point around um, ice cream sales and drownings increase at the same rate. So the more ice cream sales there are, the more people drown. And the question was, is that just a coincidence? And actually, it's not just a coincidence, but it's not a cause and effect relationship either. It's actually the, the temperature. The hotter it is outside, the more people are likely to swim, and therefore, the more people are likely to drown. And the hotter it is outside, the more likely people are to eat ice cream. And so both of those things are not causing one or the other, but it's a third thing that's causing both of those things to happen. And so this is one of the reasons why it can be often very difficult to um, come to um, solid conclusions on cause and effect relationships. Let me kind of explain a little bit what I mean as it comes to the Bible here. I preached a sermon about a year ago entitled, Your Reactions Are Showing, Lessons from a Virus. And in that sermon, I gave this quotation from Paul Tripp. And Paul says this, The difficulties in life in this fallen world are the occasion of our worry, but not the cause. And we spent a whole sermon talking about this. And the Bible verse that we looked at was Luke 6 in verse 45, where Jesus says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And so we talked about the fact that what comes out of us couldn't come out of us if it wasn't in us to begin with. And so these, these situations we go through are not 
uh, telling us as much about the situation as they are about our own hearts. Our beliefs, actions, emotions, feelings, they come from our hearts. And so if I lose my job and become depressed, the loss of the job did not create the depression, but it revealed something that was going on in my heart that was already there to begin with. So it would be more accurate to say that a lost job is the occasion of my depression, but not the cause of my depression. John Owen said this, Temptations and occasions put nothing into men. They only draw out what was in them before. Uh, And then Jim Berg also says this, When we take a tea bag, place it into a teacup, and fill the cup with hot water, the water activates the tea in the bag, unleashing its taste into the water around it. The hot water didn't create the taste. It merely revealed or drew out what was already in the bag. And so we kind of understood this as we uh, looked at that particular sermon in that particular text. And so what I want to say now is that I hope that this little short exercise on causation and correlation is hopefully a little bit clear to us as we look at what I'm going to call the uh, occasions of our depression. This doesn't mean that these necessarily cause it, but that they reveal it. And the first one, I'm I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list, but the first one um, is uh, biology. There are some ways in which biology can function as hot water in order to reveal what is inside of the tea bag. So, for example, things like uh, hypothyroidism, numerous kinds of medication, uh, hallucinogens, lack of rest, lack of food, all those kinds of things can contribute to this. And I want to give you an, an interesting illustration from the book of First Kings about this very thing. We're going to look at 1 Kings 19, verses 4 through 8, and it's talking about Elijah. And this is when Elijah became depressed because his life was threatened. And we read this. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God." I take this passage to mean that sometimes we just need a sandwich and a nap, okay? (laughs) Sometimes these things that are assaulting us and the depression that we go through is simply prompted by the occasion of something going on biologically. I'm just tired. (laughs) And you all know how you get when you get tired, You all know how you get when you get hungry, and you all know how you get when you mix those two together, and you get hangry, okay? (laughs) These are occasions of our depression, and sometimes it's simply helpful to just have a sandwich and take a nap. 
In fact, sometimes one of the things that may even be helpful is if you are struggling through something like this is to simply just get a normal checkup and, and, and cross things off the list. Are there any other things in my life going on that I need to cross off of the list and recognize that these can be occasions to prompt our depression? That's the first one is biology. The second one is this, life circumstances. Now, there are about a million items under this point, and I'm not going to talk about all one million of them because we would be here all day. But I want to give you a few highlights from this particular uh, section. They could include you know, significant life changes, job instability, financial insecurity or uncertainty, relationship stress, spouse, parent, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, death of a loved one, sickness, abuse or trauma of some sort, midlife crisis, loneliness. And again, in keeping with our theme, I would not say that these are causes of depression, but occasions of depression. We might even call them triggers of depression, And since we defined last time depression as sorrow without hope, we do understand that we can be sorry in these kinds of situations. We can have sorrow in these kinds of situations. It's okay to, uh, in fact, you should experience sorrow if you have relationship stress. You should experience sorrow if you uh, are going through a death of a loved one or something like that. These things, if, if you're not experiencing sorrow, something is wrong. But remember, we defined it as sorrow without hope. There's a difference. And so we want to go through our sorrow with hope. That's the second one is life circumstances. The third one, and where we're going to spend the rest of our time, is going to be wrong thinking. And actually, I was kind of wrestling a little bit with this. These are probably actually, if I was trying to be precise in this, probably a little bit closer to causes than occasions. But they're not always causes because people are inconsistent, right? So you can have all the right thinking in in terms of mentally, have all the right doctrine, but you are struggling through this because there's an inconsistency, and the opposite is true as well. You, you may be, have your thinking off in some of these areas, and yet you're not struggling through depression because you're not being consistent all the way through. And so I kind of waver a little bit on some of these. Are they more occasions or causes? Uh, I would tend to lean towards causes in, in, in some of these, but I'm just going to give them to you, and then uh, we, can, we can work through them together. The first one is this misunderstanding and or misapplying grace. What do we mean by this? Misunderstanding and or misapplying. If you misunderstand and or misapply grace, you are a prime candidate for depression. Paul says in Romans 11 and verse 6, if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul is saying, it's grace or works. And if it's works, it's not grace. 
If there's any amount of contribution you make to your salvation, sanctification, then that's not grace. That's works. And so what Paul is saying is just by infusing a little bit of works into the equation, you've totally nullified the grace thing. You don't believe in grace. You believe in works. Many well-intentioned individuals will talk with someone who's struggling through depression and give advice along these lines. You know, you've got this. You can get through this. Again, probably well-intentioned, but bad advice. Why? The world tells you you can find strength within. And by the way... Both major political parties are doing this, okay? You can do this. The strength is within. You're good enough to do this. In a sermon series on depression, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in 1954 said this, Something else may be the cause of the trouble, talking about depression, and very frequently it is that we may have been living the Christian life or doing Christian work by means of carnal energy. He means you're doing it in your own strength. We may have been doing it all in our own strength instead of working in the power of the Spirit. We may have been trying to do God's work ourselves, and of course, if we try to do that, there will only be one result. It will ultimately crush us because it is such high work. You think you can live this Christian life yourself? prime candidate for depression. Some of you have in your background a form of Christianity that preached this message. Do better, try harder. In Protestantism, too. And so the message was Here's what the commands in Scripture are. Here's what you're supposed to do. Now go get to work on yourself. You believed or were taught that you needed to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and sanctify yourself. Paul says this, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Is that how foolish you are? Are you so foolish that, that you actually believe that the Christian life works like this? I trust in Christ by faith, and then Christ is no longer needed, and I work the rest out myself. Is that what you believe Paul is saying? The goal in the Christian life is not Mayberry. This is not what the goal is. The goal is not that we live in this quaint little town, in this quaint little community, in this nice little place, and we all just say and do nice little things to each other. Teaching that only focuses on the human response Teaching that only focuses on the human response is shallow because it does not equip us with the right tools or motivation to fight our own sin. Your toolbox is incomplete. 
And everybody will respond to this kind of teaching, I would say, in one of three ways. I don't know if this applies to you, if this is your background or not, but if you're in a background where you kind of, whether it was taught explicitly or you kind of absorbed from the culture that it's try harder, do better, do, do, you work, you work, you work, you work, you work. If that is your background, you will respond to that in one of three ways. Either you will embrace it, which is called legalism, or you'll say, forget this, and you will embrace antinomianism. It doesn't matter if we obey. God accepts us anyway, so just do whatever you want. Or the third option is you will come to accept grace. And you will abandon both legalism and antinomianism. Because grace says that obedience and love for God can be together. Grace doesn't tell you to forsake obedience. It equips you to obey. And that's the third response. So let's say that you were exposed to some of these following viewpoints. I'm in the driver's seat regarding my salvation. I'm in the driver's seat regarding my sanctification. Preaching should be primarily about the how-tos of life. God loves me more than other Christians because I've worked harder to obey him. God loves me less than other Christians because I've struggled to obey him. If I fight hard enough, I can overcome my sin struggles. Or if you become suspicious when somebody else receives grace without working as hard as you have worked. If you embrace that way of thinking, you are embracing a legalistic spirit. Which is to say, you believe that somehow you can contribute to your standing with God by your own effort. And maybe you're repulsed by that. Maybe you grew up in a context that was like that, and you became very angry because you saw a lot of hypocrites who were very clean on the outside and very dirty on the inside. And you became so angry that you took the antinomian route as the way out. That you abandon obedience and you take a much more liberal understanding of obedience. Ah, God doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God isn't concerned with your obedience, so it doesn't really matter. If this is your response, then you have embraced antinomianism. And so you could fill in the blank with whatever it is. I, I don't want to do this, and so God just cares about my heart, and I'm not going to worry about this because it's just this external rule. So an example, you might say, you know, they were way too fundamental about modesty, so I'll wear whatever I please. After all, it's my body, right? It, for just, it's, it's this throwing off of restraints, this... this They were legalistic, so now I can do whatever I want. And we forget that there's a third way. I can obey the Lord and love the Lord through grace. If we embrace that third option, grace, we then see that it upholds both the importance of God's free gift and my responsibility to obey him both. One result of rejecting this third way of grace, which is the biblical way, 
is that we find ourselves becoming very depressed. Why? What does my view of grace have to do with depression? Because of this. There are few things that can depress a Christian faster than being confronted with how ineffective you are in fighting your own sin. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I've worked, I've worked, I've worked, and bam, I failed. Now what? I spiral out of control into depression. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 23, these have, talking about all these fleshly strategies, have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You cannot stop the indulgence of your flesh. You can't. You will fail. And if you think you can do it and you try it, you will fail, or you'll give up and embrace antinomianism, and you'll become depressed. That's the first way that we uh, don't think correctly about the Christian life. <laughs> Number two, misunderstanding and or misapplying the atonement. If you don't understand the sufficiency of the atonement, you are a prime candidate for depression. <laughs> Hebrews 9. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age, is to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here's what we need to understand about the atonement. It is complete. As I was reading, I I read a story. I don't remember what uh, pastor it was, but there was some pastor preaching, and, you know, somebody came up to him after the service, and said, you know, what, what, what do I have to do to be saved? And the pastor said to him, it's too late. He said, what, what do you mean it's too late? He said, it's, it's too late. You said, the, 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 is, are you saying it's too late because the service is over? He said, no, it's too late because Christ already did it. You don't have anything to do. What can I do to be saved? It's too late to do anything. Christ is the one who's done it. It's already completed. It's, it's finished. It's sufficient. It is enough. This is what helped John Bunyan. John Bunyan struggled immensely with what uh, today would be termed OCD. And Bunyan overcame this in a split second of time because he said this, I saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better and not my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Christ himself. It is enough. And he was going back and forth, up and down, thinking, 
I'm adding something to this. I need to contribute to this atonement. And then he realized, Christ is my righteousness. He is my righteousness. He is enough. Let me give you some examples. When I say that we misunderstand and misapply the atonement. What would, what would you do if you didn't believe the atonement was enough? You might, and some people do this, you might willingly go to a counseling session because you believe that the act of going to counseling itself is helping you to cover your sins. In other words, look, I'm demonstrating humility. This must be helping that this must be helping to alleviate my sin problem. You might, and this is a popular one, one that I've referenced before, you might seek out self-punishment or self-harm, such as cutting or masochism. This is because you know that you deserve punishment, and your guilt tells you that your sin needs to be paid for, but you don't believe or act like the cross is enough. So now I have done this bad thing. I feel guilty because I've done this particular thing. And if you believe the atonement is enough, you'll rest in Christ and say, he is my righteousness. And if you don't believe the atonement is enough, you'll say, I've got to do something to atone for this. Maybe if I hurt myself or punish myself in some way, that would alleviate the guilt. You cannot rest until more punishment and more atonement has been secured. Christ is not enough. By the way, if you take this path, you will never satisfy yourself with self-punishment. It is an endless atonement because you, the guilt goes away for a moment and then the guilt comes back and you have to punish yourself again and again and again. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a label for these things, okay? I'm going to call these ways to atone for yourself Protestant purgatory, okay? <laughs> this is a Protestant purgatory. We reject the false doctrine of the Roman Catholic purgatory. And, and what is that? Basically, Roman Catholic purgatory is, you know, you're kind of working off your the excess of your sin before you're let into heaven. So I've trusted in Christ as a Catholic, and I, um, but, but my, my bad deeds kind of outweigh my good deeds, and so I just need to do that one final purge, that one final cleanse, and I go through purgatory. We, as Protestants, oftentimes act as if we believed in purgatory because we say, I have to work a little bit harder to pay off my remaining sin debt. So those are two ways in which we embrace a Protestant purgatory. Sometimes, here's an interesting one. Sometimes people who are depressed don't try to get any help because they believe they deserve to be depressed. In fact, they view their depression as a punishment that is helping to work off the remaining sin debt. You ever felt that way or, or seen someone act that way? And so that becomes a roadblock to them seeking out help because now 
It's like, but I need this depression in my life because I need to work off my sin. It almost becomes, and this is odd maybe for some of us who've never gone through this to understand this, but sometimes it actually almost becomes an addiction of sorts. I need to remain in depression because I'm atoning for my sin and it feels good to atone for my sin and I need this more. And this sometimes is a reason that people don't seek out help because they become addicted to it. It's Protestant purgatory. This is a false view of guilt. They believe that they are purified through their suffering. Instead of believing that I'm purified through Christ's suffering, I believe I need to be purified through my own suffering. And, and, that, and, I, and I only gave you just a couple of these, but there's a million ways in which you can do this. It could be because I'm going to counseling and I'm working off this guilt or I'm punishing myself through inflicting some sort of harm on myself or I deserve to be depressed and this is purifying me of my guilt and my sin. And of course, all of this is a distortion of the completed work of Christ. So what does that person need? What is the person who believes that their depression is working off their sin punishment need? They need to think about the atonement. They need good theology. They need to realize Christ already did that and that he has uh, completed that. The third way of wrong thinking is misunderstanding and or misapplying faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Paul writes, We walk by faith and not by sight. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 says the righteous shall live by his faith. This is to say that not only is the doorway into the Christian life done by faith, but the daily walking through the Christian life is done by faith. In his sermon on spiritual depression, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, the Christian is never meant to be carried away by his feelings, whatever they are, never. That is always wrong in a Christian. We're not saying that feelings are wrong but we're saying that we don't determine our thinking by our feelings. We determine that by truth. Because sometimes feelings and truth kind of go in opposite directions. We are instead to live by faith. So when my feelings and my emotions are telling me something that's not true, I am instead to live by faith. I'm not to live by what my eyes see, but what what, what the Bible says. So an example of this is that sometimes the person who's not living by faith is a perfectionist. This person believes that they are the ones responsible for ordering their lives. They often try to put on uh, a mask at church, not a literal one, a figurative one. They, they put on a front, okay, of who they are, and they pretend to be someone that they are not. To give people the illusion that everything is okay in their lives, when in actuality everything's falling apart. They grasp at anything they can to order their lives themselves and take credit for their own accomplishments. But in reality, they're not trusting God for their day-to-day lives. I can do this. I can order my life. I can... What is missing there? Faith. The next one is misunderstanding God. Now, this is a big one. I would suggest to us that every problem we face comes down to this. View of God, view of self. You go off 
the rails there, and you're going to go off the rails in a million other places. Lloyd-Jones says this, I suggest that this particular manifestation of spiritual depression is due to the fact that this person is still morbidly and sinfully preoccupied with self. Everything's about me. Lloyd-Jones continues, I have said that part of the trouble with these people is that they are still morbidly preoccupied with themselves, that they have not learned as Christians that they are to deny self and take up the cross and follow him and leave themselves past, present, and future in his hands. Ah, yes, but why? Why are they morbidly preoccupied with themselves? Why? The answer is that they are not sufficiently occupied with him. These go together. It is our failure to know him and his ways as we should know them. That is the real trouble. If we only spent more of our time in looking at him, we should soon forget ourselves. For every one look at self, take ten looks to Christ. Some of us have a really hard time in just letting God be God. But God is the one who orders the universe, not you. God is the one who makes the decisions about how things are going to be run, not you. God is the one who made the decision that the sun was going to rise today, not you. God was the one who decided that there was going to be oxygen in your lungs at this very moment, not you. Life is not about you, it's about him. You are not God, he is. And to go back to the legalism and antinomianism distinction we saw a moment ago, the problem with both of these distortions is that they don't want to let God be God. The legalist says, I'm going to be God because I will get there on my own effort, on my own steam. I'll order my life the way it should be, and I'll get there. I'm God. The antinomian believes they are God because they don't care what God says. I'll do whatever I want. God, God, it's just my heart. God knows my heart. That doesn't scare people like it should. <laughs> I, that, that, I love that. That, that uh, you're, you're talking with somebody and you say, this is what God's word says about your sin. And the response is, you know, Stop talking. God knows my heart. Wow. Okay? That's kind of scary. God knows your heart, and it's worse than you think it is. Both legalism and antinomianism focus on self. Neither focus on God. If you will just understand this one thing, this one thing that life is all about God, it will radically change every aspect of your life. I've told you before the story when I was at Northland, and we had a, one of our professors who told us, you guys need to be building your biography of God. And in my ignorance, 
I thought to myself, look, I, I get this, okay? God is good, he's holy, he's just, he's righteous, da-da-da-da-da-da, okay, let's get past that. You know, that's, that's first base, and now I need to get to, you know, second and third base. I want you to tell me, you know, how I can debate with an atheist and demolish them, right? <laughs> I, I, I want to know how I can, you know, what's the secret of living the Christian life? How can, what strategy can I Im- implement to overcome my sin or whatever it might be? You know what I realized? I didn't know God. Because the answer to all of the Christian life is knowing God. What is the strategy to overcoming sin? Know God. What is a strategy to overcome depression? No, God. What is a strategy to grow? No, God. It's like the story of the man who uh, goes and begins to study martial arts. Did I share this here before? I don't think I did. Maybe I didn't. It's like an old legend, okay? And this guy goes and he finds this person who is this, you know, expert, this wise old sage uh, out in the mountains somewhere. And he goes to this man to learn martial arts. And the man says, okay, day number one, I have a big vat bucket full of water. And I want you to empty the water with uh, the, the palms of your hands. You just, I want you to slap every day. Slap it until the water's gone. This guy's hours upon hours upon hours every day, and he's slapping the water, and the, 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 he empties numerous buckets every single day, and he's getting absolutely frustrated. I came here to learn, you know, martial arts, and, and all he's done is, you know, having me slap this water out of this bucket. And so finally the day comes when his family comes to visit him, and uh, his family is... Uh, meeting with him, and they're kind of standing around the table together, and the family is saying, you know, what, what have you learned? How's your progress? And in a moment of just absolute frustration, you know, the, the, the man in anger says, he's taught me nothing, and he raises his hand, and he, you know, hits the table, and it breaks in two pieces, and his family's like, whoa, what, what have you, how did you do that, you know? And the whole time he's, he's learning this, he didn't realize that what he was doing was actually the cause of his success. He thought he had to go through a different path. There's something very similar in the Christian life. You're told you need to get to know your God. And we doubt, and we think that we need all of the man-centered theology. But here's what happens. We're learning about God, we're reading God's word, we're, we're memorizing the word, we're, we're praying the word back to God, we're meditating on scripture, we're, we're hearing about the attributes of God, and then all of a sudden, one day, we wake up out of bed and we say, wait a second, I'm less anxious than I used to be. Wait, wait a second, I don't struggle with depression like I used to struggle with that. Wait, 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 wait a second. 
things in my life are radically different than they used to be. And it wasn't an overnight thing, but it was slowly, slowly being exposed to the character of God, the character of God, the character of God, being exposed and exposed over the long term, over the, the, a year, two years, five years, ten years, over decades of being exposed to God himself. And all of a sudden we wake up and say, I'm different than I used to be. This is the effect of knowing God, and here's the verse for it. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Passive verb. So it doesn't say we are transforming ourselves. It says we are being transformed, which means that something or someone else is doing the transforming. So if I'm being transformed, if someone else is transforming me, how is that happening? Or which group of people does that happen to? And it happens to the group of people who are beholding the glory of the Lord. Do you see that? Do you you see that? The ones who are beholding God's glory are the ones being transformed. What's the application? Get to know your God. Praise your God. If you misunderstand this point, you are a prime candidate for depression. God changes you as you are exposed to him, not because you're really good at fixing yourself. Implement all the strategies you want, and you will fall short and realize, I can't conquer myself. Next point is this. We looked at uh, some misunderstandings. We're going to look at a couple of fears. The first one is the fear of the future. Um, This can be real or imaginary fears. And so often those who are depressed are facing imaginary fears, though not all the time. They're full of what-if statements. What if my family gets sick? What if I lose my job? Lloyd-Jones says this, they are completely governed and mastered by the unknown future, and that is always wrong. Let's just stop it with the what-if statements. Some of of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you nag yourself to death with what-if statements. You don't know that. I've recently referenced what has been termed the cult of safism. And I want to give to you a quote from the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. These are two liberal authors, by the way. And so they're not at all writing from a conservative viewpoint. And they're actually observing a problem predominantly in their own tribe. And they call it out and say, we got to knock this off. And here's what they say. The modern obsession with protecting young people from feeling unsafe is, we, is, we believe, one of the several causes of the rapid rise in rates of adolescent depression, anxiety, and suicide. And this is a great book, by the way, um, to hear what they're saying in their own tribe, uh, because a lot of it is true. They believe that college campuses are not adequately preparing young people for the road ahead. They say in the book that the modern attempt to wrap everybody in bubble wrap actually ends up resulting in weak people instead of strong people. This means that, according to the authors, 
when these people encounter difficult situations, they are not adequately prepared, and thus they fall into despair and depression. I agree. Back to Lloyd-Jones, he says this, Our fears are due to our failure to stir up, failure to think, failure to take ourselves in hand. You find yourself looking to the future, and then you begin to imagine things and say, I wonder what's going to happen. And then your imagination runs away with you. You are gripped by the thing, and you do not stop to remind yourself of who you are and what you are. This thing overwhelms you, and down you go, he says. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. What is fear of the future? It's a failure to let God be God. He is in control, not us. And I know I'm going a little bit long here today, but hang with me. I'm close to being done. Fear of failure is the next one. Um, Again, Lloyd-Jones says this, the spirit of fear which results from the spirit of bondage in this type of Christian is ultimately a fear of themselves and a fear of failure. They say, I've come into this Christian life, but how can I live it? It is so marvelous and wonderful and exalted. How am I to live such a life? How can I rise to such heights? And with this consciousness of their own weakness, the greatness of the task and the power of the devil, they enter into the spirit of bondage and are held and uh, held down and troubled and worried by full of fears. So some people are afraid to take on a task until they're certain they'll be successful. And this fear holds people back and makes them a prime candidate for depression. Okay, we still got a lot of ground to cover. Sorry for going a little long today. Um, but I want to um, bring this to, to just one application today. So we're going to continue, uh, Lord willing, next week with some more occasions and causes of depression. Um, but I just want to land the plane in one area, and, and that is this. Let God be God. <laughs> I don't mean by that that you have the ability to let God be God, because you don't. He will be God whether you allow him or not, okay? That's not what I mean by that. Uh, My point is that you need to live as if God were God, because he is. And so, 1 Peter 5, 6-7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So here it is. Let God be God. Cast your cares on him. Trust that Christ is enough. And Lord willing, we'll get to a lot more of this application uh, when we get to our closing sermon on this topic. Thank you, God, for today and your grace to us. We thank you for your mercy and your patience. We pray that you'd help us now. In Christ's name, amen.